Let us pray. Gracious God, on this Palm Sunday, we thank you for the great gift you gave humanity and sending your son to be not just our example, but our savior. And as we greet him with shouts of Hosanna and also angry shouts of anger, we pray that you would hold all of that in your mercy and enable us to be your people and to see your grace. As we study Daniel today, we pray we learn something new about ourselves, each other, and about how to serve you in the world. And it's in Jesus's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so today we are on chapter five. And for those of you who have really gotten to know and love Nebuchadnezzar, too bad. He is off the scene and his son Belshazzar is now ruling the show for Babylon. And so we're going to pick up with his feast today. King Belshazzar made a great festival for a thousand of his lords, and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. Under the influence of the wine, Belshazzar commanded that they bring in the vessels of gold and silver that his father, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his lords, his wives, his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the vessels of gold and silver that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank the wine, and they praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and began writing on the plaster of the wall of the royal palace next to the lampstand. The king was watching the hand as it wrote. Then the king's face turned pale and his thoughts terrified him. His limbs gave way, his knees knocked together. The king cried aloud to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the diviners. And the king said to the wise men of Babylon, whoever can read this writing and tell me the interpretation shall be clothed in purple have a chain of gold around his neck and rank third in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king the interpretation. The interpretation. Then King Belshazzar became greatly terrified and his face turned pale and his lords were perplexed. The queen, when she heard the discussion of the king and his lords came into the banqueting hall, the queen said, "O oh, king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts terrify you or your face grow pale. There is a man in your kingdom who is endowed with a spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, he was found to have enlightenment, understanding, and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and diviners, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems, were found to be in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called out and he will give the interpretation. Okay, so um, King Belshazzar, this is Nebuchadnezzar's son and he has inherited the throne. We don't really know much about him, although a lot about his character is revealed in this chapter. And he is just throwing a big old party for thousands of his lords. He's getting drunk with a thousand other people. And just to kind of set the scene, this is what kings do. They display their wealth. They show their power. They throw lavish parties because that's what they think 
abundant life and success and everything that is good is all about. And so that's what he's doing. And not only that, but they're bringing in the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem. We recall that the book of Daniel begins with Nebuchadnezzar coming in and seizing um, the city and taking people like Daniel back to the headquarters. And part of that was sacking the temple. And this was a big crisis for the people of Israel. Nebuchadnezzar had taken the holy vessels out of the temple and now uh, King Belshazzar is drinking from them in front of the whole kind of festal gathering. And so it's not just they need some cups and they've run out of their own flatware and things like that. This is actually a display of dominance, right? The point is to mock Israel's God. It's to remind the crowd that the kingdom of Babylon has conquered other people and so what's happened here is the flaunting of imperial conquest. People are saying, look at us. We are great Babylon. We have conquered these sad little people. And now we're drinking from the vessels that used to be in the temple that they worship. And those gods are impotent. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been conquered. And so we will now praise the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Now, you recall the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had in chapter two, where there was a statue with a gold head and silver arms, and there was that stone that crushed that statue, and each of these different elements stood for a different kingdom. Uh, it's no coincidence that these are the same materials from the dream in chapter two. This is to signal to the reader that they are praising something that is temporary and going to be crushed. But it also brings to mind Psalm 115. And if you don't have Psalm 115 committed to memory, that's okay. I have it down here. <laughs> Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but they don't smell. Hands, but they don't feel. You know, you kind of get the point. And so for the psalmist and for many people in the Bible, um, this idea that people worship gold, bronze, iron, wood, stone, it is part of this larger narrative where the chief sin in scripture is idolatry, whether it is committed by the pagan nations who worship these other gods, or whether it's committed by God's own people who worship a golden calf or who offer sacrifices in the high places. The chief sin in the Old Testament and the Bible at large is always idolatry. And here is Belshazzar committing idolatry and not just an ignorant, mild form of idolatry, but like a I'm going to mock the God of Israel idolatry. This is flagrant. It's intentional. And this guy thinks he's hot stuff. Well, verse five, there is a human hand that appears out of nowhere next to a lampstand. The point is, everyone can see this, the king can see this, and it starts writing on the wall. Obviously, this is terrifying. I'm sure you've never had an experience where an invisible hand has started writing on a wall. If you've heard the phrase, you know, the writings on the wall, this is where it comes from. Mm -hmm. And it is the fingers of a human hand. Now, we recall that there was the human-like figure in the furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who had uh, the appearance of the son of the gods. 
when we get to chapter seven, you're going to see the son of man emerge. And so we can ask ourselves, is this the same hand of the same figure in the rest of the book of Daniel? Why is it a human hand? Is this the son of man? Is this the Jesus figure? We can have that conversation. But nevertheless, it's writing. And obviously, the king is terrified. His knees knock together. Again, if you've ever heard the phrase knocking knees, I don't think you're going to find it in literature that predates this. And so this is a culturally significant passage. Even today, we have sayings that refer to it. And by now, you know the story, right? He calls in all his own people. He says, bring me the magicians, bring me the wise men. Um, And as the story goes, none of them can solve the riddle. Now, had this been Nebuchadnezzar, he would have gone to get Daniel. But um, this guy, Nebuchadnezzar's son, doesn't even know who Daniel is. Think about that. Think about what he witnessed with his father being driven out like an animal into society and being restored with Nebuchadnezzar decreeing that no one shall mock the God of Israel. And here's his son doesn't even know who Daniel is. The queen has to tell him there was this guy, she says, that your dad really liked and he was ranking in a high position. Let me go get him and he can explain the riddle. He can tell you what all of this means. And so we can raise the question, well, what happened to Daniel? Was he demoted? Is he in retirement? Um, And kind of like Joseph in prison in the book of Genesis, uh, that great man has been forgotten, but now he's being remembered again. And Belshazzar is about to, I don't want to say meet Daniel for the first time, because they've no doubt met, right? Daniel was a high-ranking person in his father's kingdom. Daniel had to have met the next guy in line. But this guy is so arrogant. He's so full of himself. He's drinking so much wine in the presence of his people that he doesn't even know who Daniel is. Uh, And so I'm going to go ahead and pause there and we'll have some conversation before we get to the second half. Just on this particular reading, just how quickly uh, God acted. I mean, there was no hesitation. (laughs) He just immediately, well, immediately but he immediately showed up and said you know get with it um and needed a translator you know belshazzar needed a translator to understand it but you know there was no hesitation on his part on god's part her part that's right that's right yeah i'm struck by the irony in this uh in the sense that here is the king of the greatest empire, um, brings out all the gods that he has. Um, and yet the question under all this is who really, really controls the course of events in history? And it is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that, that controls. And I think this is an important book for us because my view is, is that all of us just because of the way we've been raised and the situation in which we've been raised, basically all of us are finally deists. We think there's a God sort of, uh, and we like to ask him for things, but a God who actually rules the course of history for his own purposes is something that almost one never hears talked about. But in point of fact, 
in point of fact, what this book is about. I mean, the wise men of Babylon can't interpret it because they're not in touch with what's really going on and who's really in charge. And Daniel can because he is. I don't know, that's very poorly put, but uh, I think that we'll miss this book if we understand that underneath it all is a question of who rules, who is powerful, who, as it were, con controls the passage of history. Um, I could go on, but I won't. Sorry. <laughs> what, what, one little comment, um, Philip, you, you mentioned that we're all uh, deists or that that might be kind of our default posture. There was a, a guy last name Smith who did a study on the religious beliefs of, um, I think, people under the age of 50 or so in America several years ago. And he, he, he coined the phrase moralistic therapeutic deism to kind mm. of encapsulate what he thought the actual beliefs were of professing Christians. Uh, moralistic, meaning the point of faith is uh, to be good. Therapeutic, the point of faith is to feel good. And deism, the idea that God's kind of far away. We can call on God if we're in a jam. Um, and, you know, God's going to mind his own business and tell us to mind our own, but God will step in if need be. And so what he found was that the belief of most people was that God wants us to be good, feel good. And that God will intervene as long as uh, as long as we're being good and feeling good, you know, God's fine, we're fine, you know, and that's kind of what he found the the main mental model was of many professing religious people in America, which is very interesting, and it's a different kind of model than what we have here in the Book of Daniel. Exactly, I think was is interesting in this story is how jealous and sensitive God seems to be about his consecrated vessels. Belshazzar has probably been totally arrogant since birth. His character is not suddenly changed and become un unbearably repugnant to God. But the minute they, they bring out the vessels and start using them in a profane and mocking way toward God and, and particularly toasting the other gods, the gods of gold and silver with the vessels, then God just says, that's it, I've had it. He reaches his sort of stopping point with Belshazzar. And it kind of reminds me of the, the Dagon and the, the Ark episode in Kings where they lose mm -hmm. the Ark and then they take the take, they take the Ark into the Dagon temple and Dagon ends up bowing down to the Ark. God guards his consecrated implements very carefully. Yes, and, and that story you're referencing when the Philistines capture the Ark, it's a lovely little story that the Ark's next to Dagon and then you know, everyone wakes up in the morning and Dagon's on the ground. And it's almost like God got out and kind of like punched the idol and then went back into the ark and then they do it again. And, you know, Dagon's like missing his arms and they're like, okay, let's get this ark out of here. But I think you're right. I mean, I think that part of what is being suggested here, because one of the attributes of God uh, in the Old Testament, kind of to use the old King James language, is that God is long suffering. Long suffering means God is patient. God's going to put up with a lot. God's, you know, not going to be quick just to um, stamp out people who are disobedient. That God really wants to give people time. Um, but yes, there is this sense in which 
this Belshazzar has just gone too far too quickly and God's stepping in. That seems to be part of the feel of the chapter. Yeah, wife is a graduate of Seattle Pacific. Oh, wow. <laughs> She's a survivor. <laughs> well, got a lot out of it. She was a chaplain there for a while. Uh, but anyway, just so you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, i good things about it, but it had its issues. <laughs> I, think yeah. would, I think she would agree with you entirely. So, but, I, yeah. I, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say you do, but, but you do reference, you know, Philip's book. But I think it's a good example because the question you asked is what would it look like to embody? I mean, I, I forgot exactly how you phrased the question, but what would it look like? to embody this different way of being. And many people throughout time and history have wrestled mightily trying to answer that question. And, you know, Philip's book on the Christian socialists was a particular moment in time where people gathered to answer that question in a very particular way, rooted in a very strong doctrine of the incarnation. Uh, As Philip talks about in his book, it was beautiful. We have a lot to learn. Not perfect. There's some places where um, um, no one ever does it perfectly, but but it's a, it's one example among many, and we could offer some even now today where smaller groups of people and smaller movements pop up that are really passionate about answering that question. And I use the word small intentionally because I've always had this theory that when Jesus said, where two or three gather in my name, there I am in their midst. You know, we often hear that as like a maximum requirement. Is Jesus not present when I'm alone? If there's only two, is Jesus not present? And I've, I've always heard that in the opposite way, that like the smaller the group, the more likely that Jesus is fully present because the larger we get, the more difficult it is, I find, to sustain the radical alternative embodiment of these values that we're talking about today, that two or three people can do it a little bit easier than a church, that a church can do it a little bit easier than a diocese, that a diocese can do it a little bit easier than uh, the whole church, um, and that the smaller we are, kind of the, uh, the more often I find these movements uh, afoot. I don't know if that resonates with you. That's just my two cents. Well, and I think Paul certainly had his issues trying to deal with those first churches and and the diversity and the 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 idolatry and the questions that came even in those first churches in the first centuries. So so maybe it just has to be a complete transformation, like you're suggesting, is this these smaller communities of of People, I know that there's a group I belong to here in Bend. They've they've just split off from the Catholic Church and said we're going to create our own little church, and that's what they call it—a little church. Because they so um, yeah. If you didn't go up, might be kind. Um, but you know, when you ask that question, you know, somebody from outer space shows up at St. Michael's and says, "What are you doing?" And I would say, "Well, we're trying. Um, we're trying to do our part." Um, to bring the kingdom of God into, you know, um, uh, Andy Doyle calls it the garden social, you know, God's garden social imaginary. It's, you know, it's the garden of Eden remade. Um, 
and um, to simply, you know, now maybe it's an act of waiting. Maybe that's not what, you know, maybe that's what I'm not understanding or appreciating. Um, that it's not a passive kind of waiting, but it's more active um, and doing and hoping and waiting. It is, exactly. Exactly. Okay. Thank but, you. But it does not involve my thinking I've got the answer. Uh -huh. uh, or that I can provide the answer out of myself. I, 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 Barbara, I really appreciate your objection. I object to myself all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I do. Uh, but I've, I, I mean, my whole career in the Episcopal Church has been lived out in conflict. And the conflict has been led by people who are utterly convinced that God is on their side. Uh, mm -hmm. Utterly convinced. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things that occurs to me is that um, because what Barbara said, you know, Philip, what you said is right and what Barbara said is right, right? We have this thing where two things are true at once, where on the one hand, we are to wait. Um, I mean, my soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. If you read the Psalms, the number one verb you're going to encounter is wait upon the Lord. Uh, and it's true that like that's not a passive thing in scripture, as um, Barbara says, that we are to worship the Lord in the spirit of holiness, that we are to serve the poor, that we are to proclaim the gospel. And so you kind of have this reality where both are true. And one of the things that I'm mindful of is that in the Greek language, there's this thing called the middle voice, which is not the same thing as the passive voice and not the same thing as the active voice. Right. And so the active voice is, let's just uh, let's say that I'm counseling you. The active voice is I counseled, like I, I did it, I counseled. And the passive voice is I was counseled. Right. But the middle voice is I took counsel. Right? So the middle voice is where I actively participate in the action initiated by someone else. I didn't do it. I didn't receive it, but I was part of the dance. I actively stepped in to the work of something larger. And I think the key to this paradox is that we are welcomed and invited to both work and wait at the same time by stepping into the work initiated by the Holy Spirit, which means both discernment and action. Sometimes it means standing still. Sometimes it means moving forward. And that's why the virtue of wisdom is to be praised above all virtues, according to the Old Testament, because it's not about like a game plan. It's about sometimes doing nothing is what's called for. And sometimes doing something big is what's called for. I'm wondering if that resonates with anybody. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and we're going to go into uh, Daniel part two. Um, I'm going to share okay. my screen. Moving on. <laughs> yeah. No, I love it. I love that. Okay. Uh, verse 13. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king said to Daniel, so you are Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom my father, the king, brought from Judah. I have heard of you that a spirit of the gods is in you and that you have enlightenment, understanding, and excellent wisdom are found in you. 
Now, the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and tell me the interpretation, but they were not able to give the interpretation of the matter. But I've heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you are able to read the writing and tell me the interpretation, you shall be clothed in purple, have a chain of gold around your neck, and rank third in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered in the presence of the king, let your gifts be for yourself or give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and let him know the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar kingship, greatness, glory, and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. He killed those he wanted to kill, kept alive those he wanted to keep alive, honored those he wanted to honor, and degraded those whom he wanted to degrade. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he acted proudly, he was deposed from his kingly throne and his glory was stripped from him. He was driven from human society and his mind was made like that of an animal. His dwelling was with the wild asses. He was fed grass like oxen. His body was bathed with the dew of heaven until he learned that the most high God has sovereignty over the kingdom of mortals and sets over it whomsoever he will. And you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this. You have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven. The vessels of his temple have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, your concubines have been drinking wine from them. You praise the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which you do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose power is your very breath and to whom belong all your ways, you have not honored. So from his presence, the hand was sent and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed, Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. And this is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed in purple a chain of gold was put around his neck and a proclamation was made concerning him that he should rank third in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. All right. So uh, Daniel comes before the king and he asks, so are you Daniel again? Um this guy doesn't know Daniel. And that is just a sign of how out of touch he is. Notice that he uses his Jewish name for the first time. He doesn't say, are you Belteshazzar? But he actually uses his Jewish name. Now, I'm not quite sure what the significance of that is, but it is worth noting because it's a change in the narrative. And again, he says, I've heard that a spirit of the gods is in you. This is a key that he actually doesn't know uh, the God of heaven and earth, because whenever someone says a spirit of the holy gods, they are missing the point because this is the God of heaven and earth. And so whenever uh, Belshazzar says to Daniel, you know, if you could tell me what all this means, you're going to receive a lot of riches and status. Notice what Daniel says in verse 17. Let your gifts be for yourself. Let your rewards be for someone else. Now, if you recall from chapter four, this is not how Daniel talked to Nebuchadnezzar. 
right? When Nebuchadnezzar told him his dream, he said, oh, may this dream be for your enemies. Daniel likes Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel sees that Nebuchadnezzar at least has the capacity to respond to God. Daniel is not harsh towards Nebuchadnezzar, but whenever he gets in the presence of Nebuchadnezzar's son, he basically says, stop wasting your time trying to butter me up. Let your gifts be for someone else. And so this is a fearless, old, wise Daniel. He has been thrown into a furnace. He has been threatened with his life. Uh, and God has delivered him several times. And so he has very little time for the flattery of this young punk who is now the king of Babylon. And what he does is he retells the story of everything God did in Nebuchadnezzar's life and how Nebuchadnezzar had the chance to learn that the Most High God has sovereignty over the kingdoms of mortals and that Nebuchadnezzar eventually learned that lesson. But you, Verse 22, but you, Belshazzar, you have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all of this. The point is that Belshazzar has had a front row seat and has had every opportunity to learn the lessons of his father, but that he has willfully turned the other way and chosen to exalt himself. And so that's really the indictment in verse 13, that he has chosen to exalt himself and has not wanted to learn that the Most High God has sovereignty over the nations. And so he tells the meaning of what the hand says. Uh, mene means God has numbered your days and brought your kingdom to an end. Uh, it is said twice because in the Hebrew language, there is no uh, punctuation. There's no putting things in italics. The only way to emphasize something is to say it twice. And so notice how the hand writes, numbered are your days twice. That is to emphasize the importance of this message. And again, this is the same message of Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter two, that your kingdom's not going to last. You know, that every worldly kingdom is impermanent, that there's only one lasting kingdom. Um, and so this is really a, re a reiteration of the same message. But um um, God is saying it to Belshazzar very clearly. Um, Tekel means you've been weighed on the scales and found wanting. And Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. And so as you recall, the Babylonians swept in and conquered the people of Israel, but Babylon doesn't last and the Persians will take over. And we're told in verse 30, that very night, the deal went down and the Persians conquered Babylon. Um, now, I want you to pay attention to those words that very night, because, you know, remember, Nebuchadnezzar had lots of time. He had several dreams. He would, you know, accept the God of Israel and then backslide into his own arrogance. But Belshazzar basically gets one chance. And we're told that very night, the kingdom is taken from him. I want you to compare that with the parable Jesus tells in Luke 12 about the rich fool who uh, basically, you know, does really well. He's got lots of money, lots of houses, lots of crops, and basically says to himself, you know, I'm just going to eat, drink, and be merry because I'm a really successful person. And then in verse 20 of that parable, Jesus says, you fool, this very night your life is demanded of you. The reason I share that language parallel between the final verse of chapter five and of Daniel 
and this parable Jesus tells is just to point out how well Jesus knew the Hebrew scriptures, how this was Jesus's Bible, and how Jesus would have drawn inspiration from stories like this and telling his own parable of the kingdom of God. But this parable Jesus tells about the fool who builds larger and larger barns, feeling really good about himself. And then Jesus inserts the line, this very night, your life is being demanded of you. For the sensitive listener in Jesus's world, they would have picked up that Jesus was retelling the story of Belshazzar's feast and how the writing is on the wall for anyone who ultimately is concerned with themselves. And so I'll go ahead and pause there. We got about 10 minutes to discuss uh, the second half of this parable and curious what strikes you about it. One thought, and, and this goes back to, you know, people not learning the lesson is, is intended to be given, but just especially in the, the story of the son, the, the lack of handing down the wisdom or the lack of, of um, or maybe it's willful ignorance on his part. I'm not sure, but but it seems like that that story should have been immediate to him, and and still, you know, the queen has to remind him of it, and it still doesn't take hold. So the lack of I don't know if it's the lack of accepting the facts or not wanting to I, I'm not I'm not sure but the and and I think we see that I think that's a repeated story throughout all of storytelling is is the lack of of hand, the handing down of wisdom and accepting um ex, accepting this has happened before it's going to have a bad ending and we still you know push through and and try to uh control the the narrative ourselves yeah, and it's a great mystery. I mean, we all, all have this experience. Why is it that some people genuinely try to be good, to obey and seek God's will, and some people just seem to like, you know, I mean, this son had every chance, but mm -hmm. he is just totally into himself. You know, why is it? Because what we're going to find actually in the following chapter, not to spoil it, is that the Persian ruler who takes over like he's, I mean, he's got his issues and, and uh, he's going to make some mistakes, but he's kind of a God fearing man, at least relative to Belshazzar. So why is it that this Persian king coming in isn't as rotten as Belshazzar? You know, why is it that some people, you know, just blatantly um, do their thing and, and never learn the lessons uh, that are, are there? And some people seem to at least be attempting. It's a mystery. of things. Uh, one, um, uh, Belshazzar's restraint and not, you know, hating so much what Daniel had said. He didn't tell somebody to go kill him. Um, that, you know, he didn't, he certainly didn't react in anger. But then the other thing he didn't do was he didn't flatten himself in any kind of <coughs> Um, excuse me, apology or remorse. Um, and, you know, in the, in the story as it's related, I don't experience any turn in his heart um, at all. And I think that that matters 
whether God's going to smite him or not. Um, and he got smote. <laughs> well, it, it, their repentance isn't in the text. In terms of him honoring his promise to Daniel, now remember, he did see a hand appear out of nowhere. And, I mean, like there was a big kind of supernatural event. And so he's probably filled with uh, the fear of God. But, but towards that, you know, one thing that I just want to offer, and I'm curious what you think. Yes, the kingdom is taken from him because he's not faithful. But I think part of the larger message of the book of Daniel is that even if he was faithful, he's not the king of kings and lord of lords, that every worldly kingdom is impermanent, right? If you live a perfect life, if you are kind and gentle um, and live your life in love, like you're still going to lay down your life and trust and ask God to take it back up again, because the nature of being mortal is impermanence. And the nature of all mortal kingdoms, even if they're good, even if they're wise, even if they're just, um, they're not the same as the kingdom of heaven. And so, you know, on the one hand, the kingdom's being taken from him because of his deep disobedience. But on the other, it's just a worldly kingdom. And every worldly kingdom goes the way of, you know, see ya in the rearview mirror eventually. Mm -hmm. I have about all of this and particularly to that the question of, of deism or deism why does God allow so many really rotten rulers for such long periods of time if God is the king of kings but he somehow administers his kingdom through these these fallible human beings but sometimes it seems that he could do a much better job. There could be more Dariuses and fewer Belshazzars in the world, but they're not. I don't think you're gonna like my answer. Well, I don't <laughs> care, I wanna hear it anyway. My answer is I don't know. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, the truth, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of joking a little bit, but I, I mean, I, I don't know, I mean, I, one thing though I think we have to affirm right because our mind I mean from the very earliest age you know uh, as children we watch shows we break the worlds up into good guys and bad guys right I mean that's the you know that's the kind of the way uh, that we think as children and then you know as time goes on we get a little bit more complex and we can think in different categories so you know for instance my five-year-old daughter was uh, watching uh, Jungle Book and uh, it's, you know, her favorite cartoon and there's these monkeys. I'm like, oh, so those monkeys good? She goes, no. I was like, oh, so they're bad? She says, no. I was like, huh, what are they? She goes, they're just foolish. Oh. No, but, but it was the first time, it was, but it was the first time that I'd ever heard her think in a category that wasn't good or bad. She's right? not because a journalist and she's so young. She's a smart, she is smart, She's but, amazing. She, but she was able to say that no, they're just foolish. And so one of the things that we have to remember about humanity, right? Even like the wisest of rulers, the wisest of people, um, that we're all part of a fallen human race where we're all capable of really bad things under certain circumstances. And even whenever we manifest goodness and wisdom for a season, 
that virtue is not inherent to us, but it's a gift of grace often brought out by the circumstances, by people around us, uh, and by things that, um, that we didn't choose. And even, you know, when humanity is not bad, we're always a little foolish. And so, um, I don't know, that doesn't really answer your question, but no matter who you get, if you got a human ruler, you have someone who, you know, has to repent of sin in his or her life, even the best. Well, also, John, along your point, at least what I would abstract from it is uh, God's wisdom is God's wisdom is not ours. Mm -hmm. and, and it takes uh, in the Bible, they cry out again, how long, how long, O Lord, until, how long, O Lord, until. Um, I think always under this is do we believe in the in the in in the innate deep goodness of God's rule? Mm. And I think the only the only thing we can do is to point to Christ and say, I look at him and I have to say, God knows what he's doing. Now that's that's not clear on the surface of things, is it? No, it really isn't. And, and, and yet we believe that that's the case. I mean, what is the story of Israel? The story of Israel is again and again and again, it's betrayal of the God of their fathers. It's betrayal of everything that God has done for them. And how long does this go on before the time is right for Christ? Yeah. Well, I, I just have to think that, you know, just as we interact with our children, um, you know, and we want our children to learn and sometimes learning involves making the wrong decision. Um, you know, I think there is still that we have a choice. God has given us a choice. I mean, he's not manipulating the the puppets mm -hmm. you know, from the heavens i mean we are still given a choice from from you know the time in in the garden of eden um and they made the wrong choice okay and sometimes we have to bear the natural consequences of that choice um sometimes as with our kids it's if there's a if it's a matter of life and death, we bail them out. And I think, you know, some of that is kind of how I feel about how we are with God. Hmm. Um, you know, it, as our kids grow up, they've learned certain things in their life, but they may come back to us and say, you know, what do you think? What, you know, I don't know which way to go. With, you know, give me, give me some advice on it. And um, if we're good parents, we're going to give them, we're not going to tell them what to do, but we'll help them think through the problem. And I, and I, I somehow see that as kind of a similar yeah. um, relationship. Hmm. I love that. I, I think too, too, just I'm mindful we have, we're running out of time, but there's just two, two comments I want to throw into space that we're not going to have room to discuss. Um, 
uh, I'm, I'm reading the work of uh, a former seminary professor named Kate Sonderegger, who's written two volumes of the Systematic Theology. And we just had a conversation together that we published as a podcast. So it's really fresh to me. But one of the concepts that she uh, has, has really brought back uh, theologically is uh, a, a, a concept called compatibilism. Uh, and that that's a word in theology that has kind of a deep history and but but kind of at the core as we apply to this conversation would be that things that are often not compatible like in our thinking are actually deeply compatible in the economy of God's salvation two of those being things that we're talking about today one is what Julie just affirmed which is that we actually do make choices. We have a will. We have an intellect. We are responsible. We are agents who do things. We can do this or we can do that. Belshazzar can drink wine and mock the God of Israel, or he can learn from his father. And those are real choices he has. So on the one hand, we have a will. And that is compatible with our belief that God is sovereign, that God is the king of heaven and earth, and that God also does what God wills, and that God is like doing something with the cosmos, and that it will have an end that glorifies God, and that is just. And these two things don't go to he- don't always like go together in our minds. You know, Evie, to your question, you know, why is it that there are some rulers who are just awful? Uh, because people have a will, because people have choices, because love um, demands that there be some element of freedom. And that is also compatible with God being God and there being some overarching providential arc to history. So that's just one comment. The other has to do with um, that quote from Isaiah of God's ways are not our ways. And one of the things that Kate um, quotes a lot in her work is this statement that was made at the Fourth Lateran Council. This was one of these councils of the church in the 11th century, where one of the things that the church affirmed there about God uh, is that every statement we make of likeness um, between like our concepts and who God is, every statement of likeness is always met. It's true, and it's always met with a statement of ever-increasing unlikeness. So here's what that means. It means that whenever we say that God is wise, we have our idea of wisdom, and that idea applies, that there is a likeness between what we understand as wisdom and what we understand as God's wisdom. But there's also a sense in which God's wisdom is not like our wisdom at all right? A sense in which God's goodness is not like our goodness at all. A sense in which God's power is not like our understanding of power at all. And that's why God always remains such a mystery and why faith is not about understanding, but about stepping into obedience when we don't actually have a lot of answers to questions. You know, as you look around this Zoom room, as you look in your own life, there is something inside of you that you probably can't explain that says, this is important. I'm going to wrestle with these questions. I'm going to seek to know this God. I'm going to seek to grapple with it. Uh, but you, you know, if you really press yourself, you probably don't actually know why. Like something is at work inside of you and has been your whole life that's brought you to this moment. 
that if you had to write an essay explaining it, you might be a good writer, but you ultimately don't actually know why. Something much deeper, something invisible, something more transcendent has been working on you that you can't even explain, right? And, <laughs> and that's why this is a mystery. But we gather in the mystery, we celebrate it, and we seek to be faithful to God and have our life transformed, grateful that something's working inside of us. Very good. Thank you so much. Those were wonderful responses. Thank you, everybody.